With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Get in zone, AutoZone. Welcome to AutoZone. What are you working on today? Ah, thinking about gas mileage. A bottle of Lucas Complete Fuel Treatment can clean your system and help your engine get more MPGs. Right now, you can get two bottles for only $9.99. A great deal to help you go a great deal farther. Find Lucas Complete Fuel Treatment and everything you need for better fuel efficiency at any one of our 6,300 stores. Get in zone, AutoZone. Restrictions apply. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. School of Humans. This episode contains graphic descriptions of child sexual abuse and drug addiction. Please use discretion when listening. To understand Damon today, his ideas about sex and money and status and drugs and parenthood, it takes looking back at his history— Damon's success with Sanctum and his ability to create this world of excess and status and wealth didn't come out of nowhere. So let's go back for a minute to the 1970s, to Marin County, California. If you drive over the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco, that's Marin. One might call it the heart of the self-obsessed 70s. Out of the hangover of the 60s counterculture and protest movements came the Human Potential Movement, And Marin was at the center of that. Fads of the time included transcendental meditation, zen jogging, organic food, cocaine, wife swapping, and just generally getting in touch with your true self, whatever that means to you. This is where Damon Lawner grew up, among the hot tubs and redwood forests. On today's episode, we're going to take a look back at Damon's life before Sanctum, to piece together exactly how he ended up where he did. And it's a pretty wild story, at times dark and harrowing, and other times truly spectacular. Welcome to Sanctum Unmasked. I'm your host, Carly Shortino. Damon wrote a memoir a few years back. It was never published, but still, he's done some digging into his past, which we used as a reference for some of what we talk about in this episode. Now, when Damon describes 1970s Marin, he really lights up. It was a really amazing time. You know, hippies in the park and music, the Grateful Dead and bands like that when they were first getting started would come into the town where I lived, which was called Fairfax, and play music. My dad was a classically trained violinist, so he played in The Grateful Dead at times. In the band might be a stretch, but this is how Damon explains it. 
they would do these really long sets and they would break for like an hour in between sets and he'd go up on stage in this red flowing robe and play electric violin and he would probably be on LSD and just make all these noises and everything and I mean he was a really trippy guy and he was someone who was really kind of anti-society he was just a very free-thinking guy but Damon's life at home was far less zen than the one outside that same carefree trippy dad also had a darker side I mean my dad certainly would do cocaine and get high I think he was doing heroin at, at one point too but I didn't realize it at the time But he was fucked up around me a lot. I didn't understand this when I was a kid, but I do now. When he'd come down, he'd be very angry and he'd be violent. This is like five years old to seven, eight, nine, ten years old. You know, pick me up, slam me against doors, tell me I'm a fucking piece of shit. Like just, you know, just be this really evil person. Most of the time, Damon and his younger sister, Hadria, lived with their mom, who wrote poetry, and their stepdad, a clothing designer with a Jim Morrison vibe. But life with mom wasn't easy either. My mom was very much the same. We all knew something was off. She was an alcoholic. She was in abusive relationships. She was an absolutely beautiful woman who, over time, just really deteriorated. There were nights when there was no dinner. There were mornings where there was no breakfast. There's no food in the house. I'm going across the street to get toast and cereal. Um, When I was seven, eight years old, going to school, there were no clean clothes to wear. There were no haircuts. It was very chaotic. In his memoir, Damon writes that he and Hadria became inseparable in the midst of the chaos. We verified as much of the story as we could, but obviously childhood memories are difficult to fact check. So we asked Hadria to fill in some of the gaps. She's a year and a half younger than Damon. And the two of them are still really close to this day. Well, as they call it today, trauma bonding. I'm going to get emotional again. (laughs) We were very close because of it. Like we would hide under the bed and cry or be afraid. But we were like, you know, we'd watch what was going on and just we had each other, you know. Damon and Hadria have that kind of sibling relationship that I love, where they obviously adore each other, but they also love to troll each other, or at least She does. She describes Damon as a kid who had a really crazy imagination, which, if you've been listening to this podcast, tracks. I feel like when we were really young, he definitely had a lot of big ideas. Like, he would say, oh, yeah, we drive around in, like, Ferraris and live in a mansion. And and I'd be like, yeah, it's true. Now that I say that, I wonder if that was kind of like an escape because our life was so shitty And so the opposite of that, that, you know, it was like a fantasy. Looking back, the 70s was a time famous for its lax and arguably neglectful parenting styles. A time before people cared about car seats or sunscreen or just like supervision in general. But Damon's parents took this to a whole other level. He recalls having this eerie feeling of being invisible for much of his childhood. We were like the ghosts in the room, you know, like we didn't exist. They just did what they wanted to do. And that included drugs, alcohol, sex. We were exposed to all of that. That's where we grew up, witnessing a lot of things that were super inappropriate. So there's certain experiences that I remember. Like, okay, my mom was giving my stepdad a blowjob. Like he was standing up against the wall in the living room, giving him a blowjob. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, I didn't. No, but I remember it being uncomfortable, and I remember, like, seeing his penis hard and wet, and I remember being like, 
something's wrong. I felt uncomfortable. And I'm like, Mom, what, what are you doing? Because I didn't know what it was. She's like, oh, I'm getting my child support. Like, I remember her saying that. Like, she was, you know, trying to get money from him, and that was how she got it. My mom was just, like, a very overly sexualized person. So, like, my stepdad had this van that he would drive around in with this bed in the back. <laughs> One of those, like, old 70s, you know, vans with the carpeting and velvet seats. I remember specifically this one time, I'm six or seven, my sister's five years old or something. My mom's friend starts sucking my stepdad's father in the front seat of the van. They're drunk. My sister and I are in the back of the van. The curtains are not closed all the way. And then my mom, my mom's friend get in this fight, you know, like, I don't want you sucking his cock, you know, whatever it was. This stuff is filtering through me. What Damon and Hadria experienced was clearly something no children should have been exposed to. In our conversations, Damon was also very candid about a period of his childhood where he was molested by a female relative who was a teenager at the time and the deeply complicated reality of this experience. Now, we want to be careful when talking about sexual abuse. Our hope is that by sharing, other survivors will feel less alone— with that in mind, the next two-minute section includes a description that listeners may find disturbing. Here's Damon. When she would be over at the house, she would come into my bedroom late at night and she would experiment with me. I'm five, six years old, so my dick is like the size of my pinky now, right? But she would give me head and we would have sex. So I was, you know, having some form of sex or being molested. I mean, that's really what was going on at five, six years old. The thing, though, at that age, for people out there that have or haven't experienced that, is there's pleasure in it. You know, it feels good. So it's very fucking confusing because you feel this feeling that feels really good. And you don't know when you're that age that it's like really fucking wrong. You know, like that's not OK. It really wasn't until I had my own kids and I saw them at five, six years old. And I was like, my God, like, how the fuck did that happen? Why wasn't anyone watching or there to protect me or there to stop that kind of stuff? But, well, I mean, because they were all fucked up, you know. He says it's almost like a dream, but I remember it perfectly because I was there. But I didn't realize that anything was wrong. Neither did he. We just thought this is normal. And in fact, I was like, oh, what's going on? I want to do it, too. And now, obviously, that I'm older, I'm like, oh, my God, that was not not a good thing. But then at the time she was molesting him, she was also being molested by our stepfather. So it's kind of like she was copying what was happening to her to my brother. And I was just there witnessing it. Clearly, Damon and Hadria were not being protected by the people who were supposed to be looking out for them. And this is the environment where they spent their formative years. But then, every summer, from the time he was six years old into his early teens, Damon's paternal grandparents would fly him and his sister out to their home in Woodmere, a rich suburb on Long Island, New York. Damon's grandfather was a wealthy businessman. He and Damon's grandmother lived in a seven-bedroom mansion, the experience was basically the photo negative of their life in California. New York was heaven. It was the best thing in the world. Like, we went from this dark place, and then we would go see my grandparents who were wealthy, had a big home, tennis, court, swimming pool. 
I mean, it couldn't have been more polar opposite. We had this idyllic experience. I mean, my grandma would wake up every single morning and make French toast and pancakes. The pantry was filled with cereal and cookies and chips. My mom didn't even make sure that we had food. You know, I was like so fucking hungry all the time. My grandparents just had food and we got to experience normalcy. It saved our lives, I think. A lot of my father's family, they're great people, you know, and they would take care of us. We'd go bowling and we, I mean, maybe that's actually what you're supposed to have, you know. I definitely had this early realization that you can be poor and do drugs and, you know, be violent and be those kinds of people. Or you could be like really wealthy and have it together and have a beautiful life. At various points, Damon's grandparents fought to keep Damon and his sister living with them full time. But Damon's mother wasn't having it. As Damon remembers it, their mom would accuse their grandparents of kidnapping, which would ultimately result in the children being put on a plane back to chaos in California. It was like whiplash. Damon grew into a pretty rebellious teen. This is the late 80s, moving into the 90s. The era of Ferris Bueller and Heathers and just general bad boy fuck school delinquent energy. Fittingly, teenage Damon developed a real skill for lying— Just like when he was a kid, if he didn't like something about his reality, he'd just tell a different story. He lived his life in sort of truths. It was a way to feel special in a world where he often felt the exact opposite. He likes telling people that his dad was in the Grateful Dead, rather than the reality, which is that a few times his dad got high and made weird sounds on an electric violin between dead sets. Damon was also a particularly talented thief— At one point, when he was 17, he stole a duffel bag with over $400,000 in it from a local drug dealer's house. It was his friend's dad, actually. It was only after the guy came to Damon's school and threatened to kill him that Damon gave it back. I mean, most of us go through a shoplifting phase as kids, but rarely does it go that far. Kind of impressive, honestly. Damon was also notably very handsome. He wasn't so aware of his looks back then, but in hindsight... Looking back at pictures of myself, I can say this very clearly. I mean, I'm like a specimen. I'm a gorgeous kid. I really am. I mean, perfect body. I'm totally into sports. I don't do any drugs or drink because I've totally rebelled against my parents. I'm like, I never want to be like them. I never want to drink. I never want to do drugs. That shit is fucked up. So I am like healthy. I just look like this gorgeous California surfer boy. One day, when Damon was 19, he was out skateboarding in San Francisco with some of his friends. When this guy walks up and he's like, Hey kid, can I take some photos of you? I'm a model scout. Damon didn't know what that meant, but the guy explained that his job was basically to look for people to model in fashion campaigns. For big brands like Calvin Klein, for example. Remember, Calvin Klein was the epitome of 90s cool. Like those minimalist, black-and-white photos of Kate Moss and Mark Wahlberg looking impossibly hot in their briefs. Iconic. I knew about Calvin Klein because Marky Mark was like this Calvin Klein model, and we all saw those ads, you know, him in his underwear. And so I remember when he said that, I was like, oh, well, you're like thinking like I could be one of those models? And he was like, yeah, I really do. I'm asked to come into this audition, and it was for a brand I'd never heard of, Johnny Versace. In other words, one of the biggest fashion brands in the world. So Damon, naive to the world of high fashion, 
shows up to this Versace casting without a clue what that means. And he's intimidated. He's up against all these experienced models. Meanwhile, he's just rocked up from the skate park. I'm sitting in this room with all these male models. I'm like five foot ten, you know, I'm not going to get any taller. They're like six foot three. They're all really handsome men. They've got these big books of all their photographs, you know, and all this stuff. And I was like, what the fuck am I doing here? And I go in and I meet this photographer named Bruce Weber. Bruce Weber. If you're not familiar, he's one of the most influential fashion photographers of all time. He shot campaigns for everyone from Ralph Lauren to Calvin Klein to Abercrombie & Fitch, covers of Vogue and Rolling Stone. You get the idea. Anyway, Damon doesn't know who this guy is or how important he is in the industry, but he does want to make a good impression. So when Bruce Weber asks him some questions about himself, Damon whips up some of his classic white lies. For instance, he tells Bruce that he's headed to an Ivy League university to study philosophy after the summer, when in reality, he's going to the College of Marin, a.k.a. the community college in the town where he grew up. Eventually, Bruce asks Damon to take off his shirt and spin around, and then sends him on his way. And Damon leaves the casting feeling like, what the hell was the point of that? A week later, he gets a call. He booked the job. This photographer was, I don't know, he, he, he just made me feel like really beautiful. I mean, it was a different kind of interaction than I'd ever had. It was this big set with all of these people and all of these models. And there was tons of money and fancy hotel rooms. And like they treated you so well. And it was like, wow, this is a cool world. Like, what is this world? The shoot became a major campaign in all the big fashion magazines. Then a week after the ad started running, he gets another call. Bruce Weber wants to shoot him with supermodel Christy Turlington, this time for Calvin Klein. Hot. It just opened the door to this whole, like, Los Angeles kind of scene. I had a billboard on Sunset Boulevard. Like, I could walk out of the nightclubs on Sunset Boulevard in the late 80s, early 90s, and I'm on a fucking billboard, you know? It was like, how the fuck did this happen? After that, Damon got an agent and moved down to L.A., He spent the next handful of years on the model circuit, working everywhere from New York to Japan. He started booking commercials. Then he met the actor Jared Leto, who at the time was on a show called My So-Called Life, one of the seminal shows of my youth, if anyone cares. Inspired by Jared, Damon started thinking about being an actor. He started taking lessons, and he was taking it pretty seriously. He even did a mid-level production of Shakespeare's The Tempest. Cliché, yet chic. But... This is when things started to fall apart. The attention, hustling for fame, the endless, often dehumanizing cattle call of castings and auditions, it was a lot of pressure. Eventually, in order to deal with his anxiety, Damon gave up on sobriety and turned to booze. Now, the demons of his traumatic past are catching up with him. And then, at a certain point, even alcohol wasn't enough. I was one of those people that was just like sabotaging myself all the time in so many ways. And I ended up actually around 25 addicted to heroin. And from 25 to 26, all I wanted to do was just, you know, be cooped up in this little apartment. I was basically selling drugs to survive and I was doing heroin. I had so much pain that I could not understand how to deal with. I mean, my childhood fucked me up. And that pain was unresolved. And heroin made me feel um, comfortable. It made me feel okay. And it made the thoughts of everything that had happened to me as a kid just like kind of like float away. 
my parents, my friends, everyone was like, you got to stop, man. You know, you're going to die. And I didn't care. Having so much trauma inside and not knowing how to deal with it, death sounded like a really good option. At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest-cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk, text, and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. Does sleeping hot keep you up at night? Meet the Lisa Chill Collection. These cooling mattresses work like magic with a cool-to-the-touch cover, zoned springs, and comfy foam layers. Say goodbye to restless nights and wake up refreshed. Lisa's Chill Mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers that whisk away heat, so you always sleep just right. These hybrids blend up to 1,032 breathable springs and plush foams for the ultimate cooling and comfort. And the Chill Collection doesn't just feel great, it looks great too. With thoughtful design and pillowy quilt tops. No matter your budget, Lisa has a Chill Mattress for you. For a limited time, save up to $460 on Chill Mattresses and get two free pillows iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com forward slash iHeart. With Lisa, your purchase has purpose. Every year, Lisa donates thousands of mattresses to those in need. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. The next year of Damon's life played like a 90s Gus Van Sant movie. Basically, just being hot and on drugs, and that's about it. He bailed on L.A. in his dreams of being an actor and moved back to Northern California. And if even death from an overdose wasn't incentive enough to get clean, he figured this was probably it for him. But then, one day, Damon gets a call from his grandfather. And his grandfather basically tells him, Look, dude, if you don't go to rehab, I'm taking you out of my will. And this was the kick that Damon needed. For some reason, and maybe this goes to how fucked up I really was at that time, the thought of maybe one day getting some money when I didn't know how I was going to make a living and I didn't know what I was doing and I kind of just like doing drugs and like fucking off, you know, that I was going to get some money at some point and that he was telling me like, go to rehab or that's never going to happen. If I'm going to be honest, that was the spark. In other words, if I don't die, I'm eventually going to need that money to buy drugs. So he appeases his grandfather and heads to rehab. Within like two weeks of rehab, I was like, what the fuck was I thinking? You know, the fog clears. I got my soul back. In rehab, I was getting therapy. In rehab, I was talking about what got me there. Every single day, you know, that's all you're doing is talking about your childhood. You're talking about all these issues. I really hadn't done that yet. And I was hearing other people and hearing them share similar stories. And I was like, oh, fuck. Okay, there's a way out. But one stint in therapy doesn't reboot your entire personality. Believe me, I've tried. And a week before Damon was supposed to be released from rehab, he actually got kicked out because, well, he was caught fucking a female patient, which isn't allowed. Very on brand for him. But despite that, the important thing was that he'd gotten clean. And so he leaves rehab with a new lease on life. And just a month later, he's out at a club in San Francisco, sober now, and he finds a new fix. 
I'm off of heroin for about a month. And I meet this girl, and, and she's literally the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. I couldn't believe it. I see this girl, and I'm like, where did she come from? Absolutely, as far as I'm concerned, perfection. And we ended up meeting up, and we just had this, like, unfucking believable connection. This girl, you might have guessed, was Melissa. 1996, San Francisco, 1015 Folsom, so like a nightclub. And I was 18, and I used to sneak in there with my girlfriend, go dancing and smoke cigarettes and be older. And I was there one night, and he was there, and just, it was like in the movies, when the whole world stops, and he comes walking towards me, and he just sits right down, and it was like, boom, done. He has a charisma, this sparkly energy that exudes out of him. I mean... He's just attractive in all of these ways and larger than life. I go home and I tell my mom, I'm like, "Um, mom, I met the girl I'm going to marry. Like, this is the person I want to be with for the rest of my life. We were together ever since. Like, I left my parents' house. I moved in with him. We were connected at the hip from that moment on. Honestly, you never saw one without the other. Doctor's appointment, dentist appointment. Come with me here. Let's go here. You know what I mean? So we were best friends and living the life, for better or worse. But Melissa did give him one condition. She said, if you ever do heroin again, I'm going to fucking leave you. And he was like, I'm in. If it wasn't for meeting her, I would have, I'm sure I would have gone back to heroin at some point. At that time, at 26 years old, Melissa undoubtedly saved my life. Damon was trying to focus on the positive. He was off heroin. He was in love. His life was on the upswing again. And interestingly, one unexpected upside of Damon being a junkie was that one of his heroin buddies was a guy who owned investment properties in San Francisco. Back in the day, they'd get high together and he'd rant and flex about everything he knew about real estate. So once Damon gets out of rehab, he comes up with a plan to flip a rundown three-story Victorian home he'd found in San Francisco— So he lays out this strategy to his grandfather, who goes for it. He loans Damon $150,000 for the down payment. So Damon and Melissa move in, and they start fixing the place up. So Melissa and I went to work on, like, restoring this old Victorian, just the two of us. We'd wake up every morning and just, like, paint, and I'd be on the floor sanding, and we turned this fucking raggedy old Victorian apartment in San Francisco into something that was pretty nice. We had this unbelievable life there. We would go out to raves. We were doing Molly and just partying and just like enjoying the fuck out of life. If this were today, they'd be one of those annoyingly symmetrical TikTok influencer couples who do DIY home renovation. Just saying. Now, while Damon was off heroin, he still wasn't sober. So there was no reason to not consume his body weight in other white powders. Over the next couple of years, Damon and Melissa did an impressive amount of partying. In their moments of vague sobriety, Damon played in a band that was getting some traction. And Melissa was modeling, doing the runway show circuit in Milan, New York, and Paris. Things were going well. A couple years in, Melissa got interested in moving to L.A. to pursue acting. So they sold the remodeled Victorian for over a million dollars, way more than he'd paid for it. And after paying back his grandfather, Damon had $700,000 in his pocket. So they started house hunting. So we go to L.A. and we find this cool house right above the Chateau Marmont, which is this really 
famous hotel in Los Angeles where all the rock stars and movie stars, you know, are in that block. And then this whole other life begins in L.A. I saw us as this incredible kind of modern bohemian couple. We had our beautiful home above the Chateau Marmont and we were fixing it up and like doing it ourselves. And we were like really invested in our life and doing everything together. And we had fabulous dinner parties. He and Melissa were basically living that stereotypical cool kid L.A. lifestyle. She was 23. He was 30. They were more in love than ever. And on the morning of their fifth anniversary, they impulsively fly to Vegas and get married. Melissa and I were like the it couple. We were the couple that everyone kind of wanted to be. So no matter where we went, people would be like, oh, my God, you guys are so beautiful. And we'd be like, yeah, come back to our house. We live right above the chateau. Like, let's do some fucking drugs and party all night. Damon and Melissa bought their house in L.A. at the perfect time, during the real estate dip of the early 2000s, following 9-11. The home they bought for $700,000 was quickly worth $1.5 million, which is a positive, obviously. But there was one little glitch. I began to kind of live on credit. So I would pull money out of my house as needed. I just, you know, got in touch with a bank and got a house worth a bunch of money. I own it. So getting a loan from them was real easy. I could just write checks. At that time, banks were lending like, yeah, here you go. Are you breathing? And do you have equity? Okay, then you can get a loan. So they're living off the equity of the house. And Damon is busy with different entrepreneurial ventures. He launches an energy drink company called Marquee Platinum, and he invests a half a million dollars into an L.A. restaurant called Bridge. In their free time, Damon and Melissa attempted to counteract the copious amounts of drugs they were taking with facials and massages and health food restaurants. For clarity, this is why rich people look younger than everyone else. But at some point, for Melissa, the partying was starting to get old. She wanted to slow down which wasn't the news Damon wanted to hear. She wanted to have more of a traditional life, you know, have children, kind of settle down. That wasn't really my idea. I didn't really want to do that. I just wanted to be selfish. I just wanted her and me to be selfish and just enjoy life together for as long as we could ride this thing out. And she didn't want to be selfish anymore. She wanted to create a child and be a different kind of person, which is so beautiful. But I wasn't ready for that. Funny thing about babies is that they're narcissists who don't care about your timeline. And guess what? In 2005, Melissa found out she was pregnant on New Year's Eve of all nights. When Damon heard the news, he was like, well, I already bought an eight ball of really good Coke and I've got friends over. So would you mind if I got high and partied? Then he went on an insane bender. I'm sure Melissa was thrilled. But it turned out he was more ready to be a dad than he thought. When she had our first child, it changed me for sure. And I just fell madly in love. I mean, I'd never felt a feeling like that. You can't know what that feeling is until you hold your child in your arms. And I couldn't wait to, like, see this little baby grow up. He recalls that time after his daughter was born as the happiest of his life. And he made his best attempt at a more settled, conventional lifestyle. You know, strollers, baby clothes, literal silver spoons. They sold their place above the chateau and bought a house in Hancock Park, which, if you don't know L.A., is basically an upscale, bougie neighborhood. Great farmer's market. I recommend. My own view is that I was a really, like, present and loving and active father. 
But that didn't mean that I got sober. It didn't mean that, you know, I stopped some of my behavior and stuff like that. I think what it meant was that a struggle began to really be a good man and to get my shit together. That push and pull between the desire to be an upstanding family man and his impulse to stay out until 6 a.m. every night, grinding his teeth with a bunch of B-list celebrities, would continue on for years to come, well into his time at Sanctum. I mean, if you've been paying attention, you probably get this by now. I remember this one night, but I went out with a friend, you know, we started drinking and then I ended up with like, you know, just all of the like it girls who were doing everything wrong. And I'm there until fucking the sun comes. I've got a, I've got a two, three year old child at home with my wife and I'm like partying like a fucking crazy person, like back into that lifestyle. And I remember I came home at six o'clock in the morning, the sun's up, Melissa sees me walking up the back stairs to our place. And I'm like, I, I, don't, I don't know what I did with my keys. I mean, I'm like fucked up. And she's like, just go sleep in your car. I put her through shit like that. You know, that's not okay. For years, Damon had shunned drugs and alcohol because in his words, he never wanted to be like his parents. Obviously, sobriety wasn't sustainable for him. But one line that he said he never crossed was being intoxicated around his kids. The thought of exposing my kids, you know, to any of that kind of behavior, I couldn't live with myself. I can't even think of a time when I haven't been sober around them because of what I experienced as a kid. I think I went overboard in trying to make sure that they never saw me that way. Still, in pretty quick succession, Damon and Melissa have another daughter. While all this is happening, Damon's still borrowing a lot of money from the bank. And he's not conservative about it, to put it lightly. They've got the bougie L.A. couple starter pack, the big house, the Porsche, the Land Rover, designer bags, and they're not really making any money. I mean, I'm bad at math, but even I can see that those numbers don't add up. I had created this really big life for us. You know, we were flying on private jets with celebrities. I had a black American Express card. And if you don't know what that is, you have to spend a minimum of $250,000 a year on your platinum American Express card to get a black card. The main difference is its ability to make everyone you're with feel like they are below you. I was that guy. I was that L.A. guy, that successful guy with a wife and two little girls and a white picket fence. But yeah, in the back of my mind, I'm going, at some point, this train is going to pull into the station and I'm going to be fucked. And then came the financial crisis of 2008. And spoiler alert, that didn't help people living high on home equity. There's a pivotal moment from that time when the scales fell away from Damon's eyes, and it couldn't be more cinematic. I'm in Whole Foods. I go to the checkout, and it's 120 bucks for the groceries. And uh, the card gets declined. And another feature of the uh, black card is it does not get declined. I had no way to pay for those groceries. And that American Express card, when it got declined, I was like, this is the end of the road. You know? Like, it's done. I am done. This, whatever, whatever life I thought I had, it's over now. The symbol of wealth and success became this symbol of, like, utter failure in that moment. All this time, Damon had been in charge of the family cash flow, and Melissa was busy with two babies. 
Essentially, Damon had built the trappings of this bourgeois fantasy life that he thought Melissa wanted. But unbeknownst to her, it was all a house of cards. I was a new mom. I was also young, and I wasn't really paying attention to our finances. I was kind of just leaving that to him. I mean, I do take responsibility. Like, I didn't inquire. I wasn't in our finances. I should have been. So I didn't realize how underwater we were. And we were, like, living this lifestyle that I thought was all good, but it all came crashing down. But it wasn't just about making Melissa happy. Damon also wanted to keep up appearances with their rich celebrity friends because he wanted their validation. I'm going slightly armchair therapy here, but I've talked with Damon at length about how ping-ponging between chaotic poverty and rich comfort as a kid is a dichotomy that he's replicated multiple times as an adult. Eventually, it became more important for him that they appeared rich than to accept that they were really, really broke. It's all an illusion, but I didn't tell her that. I didn't tell her that until the very, very end. Until the foreclosure notice gets taped onto the front door of our place. Until my brand new Porsche gets towed out of the driveway by the repo man. At that point, I couldn't hide it anymore. Yeah, she must have been in literal shock. There were signs. It's not like she was completely in the dark. But by the time I sort of like let her into the secret that we were living on (laughs) borrowed money, it was too late. It was too late. We were homeless. That was it. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, stay connected wherever you go and transform your vehicle into a dependable Wi-Fi hotspot. Powering applications like real-time GPS and voice assistant, navigation becomes a breeze. Even on the practice field, AT&T in-car Wi-Fi keeps you connected while in proximity of your vehicle. Work, stream shows, or finish homework without missing a beat. See if you're eligible for a free trial at att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi. Don't let connectivity be a roadblock in your journey. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't get distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. They knew the bank was about to repossess all of their assets, including their home. So they started selling everything they could. Their furniture, Melissa's jewelry, Damon's Rolex. Everything they built was crumbling beneath them. In the economic crisis, Damon's energy drink company fails. His restaurant fails. They're literally a million dollars in debt to Amex. Meanwhile, they have a two-year-old and a newborn baby. So out of options, Damon calls up his dad, who was living in Bali at the time. I call him up. I said, Dad, I'm fucked. Like, I have nothing. In fact, I'm almost a million dollars in debt. And um, my dad says, well, you know, if you're going to be homeless, Bali's a good place to be homeless. He said, food's cheap. You'll, you'll be able to live. You'll be able to live out here. Now, flying to Bali with all of their worldly possessions stuffed into 17 suitcases was certainly not their life plan. 
Although, to be honest, every time I've ever heard someone talk about moving to Bali, it's somehow associated with a mental breakdown. So actually, it feels kind of fitting. So they go. The plan was to stay in Bali for a few months while they figured out their life. The whole family moved into one room, in Damon's dad's house. It was tough, obviously, but there were things about being there that they really loved. I mean, it's a cool fucking community. You don't need anything but a pair of shorts. You ride around on a scooter. You don't need much money. So I felt like the first year that we were there, although we were dealing with, you know, the trauma of what had just happened to us, for me, I was like, oh my God, thank God there's something outside of like the Western materialistic nonstop grind of trying to be someone and carry a fucking black card and drive a Porsche and doing drugs with celebrities and be this thing that I'm not really and that I'm just trying to be to be cool or whatever the fuck I was doing. Like this place was like, I couldn't have felt more free and in my element. I loved it. So they start settling in and they're making friends. I mean, they're good at that. They're fun and outgoing and being hot always helps. So one night in Bali, Damon and Melissa are out at a bar. They're drinking and dancing. And the owner comes over and says, hey, I've seen you guys in here a couple times. You're always with great people and I love your energy. Bring in a group of your friends this weekend, and I'll give you free bottle service. Obviously, they're down. So they show up with their friends and get drunk for free. And it creates a fun vibe in the place. And so the owner's like, if you want to keep this going, I'll pay you a percentage of the bar. At that moment, I was like, you can make money partying? Like, is this a thing? It was such a moment of like, holy fuck. I can party with my friends and get paid? Okay, this is something I can do. It's kind of funny. Yet again, it feels like these semi-random opportunities just fall into Damon's lap. It makes me think of that quote from Zoolander where he's like, I'm pretty sure there's a lot more to life than just being really, really ridiculously good looking. But then when you hear a story like Damon's, you're like, is there? Soon, Damon starts hosting his own regular party at the bar, and he's packing the place. Eventually, he starts approaching other venues about promoting club nights. And over the next couple of years, Damon becomes a big figure in Bali's nightlife scene. And he's making pretty good money. What began as a plan to stay in Bali for three months turns into three years. Hadria, who was seeing all this from a distance, was slightly bewildered by how everything was playing out for Damon. He would kind of leave a trail of shit behind him, but he was in front of it. You know, like somehow instead of paying the government or going to jail, he just moved on. There they went. But it wasn't like he had to clean up the mess. There's not a sense of responsibility. I get what she's saying. Damon kind of reminds me of that meme of the cartoon dog smiling and drinking coffee as his house goes up in flames. And he's like, this is fine. To that point, there was this one day in Bali when Damon was hosting a pool party he created called Splash at the Cocoon Beach Club, and he gets a very special guest. This man who's a local Balinese guy, very wealthy, you know, I was told he was a gangster. I didn't know what that meant. He comes to one of my events, and I was told to treat him with respect. So I did that. Then I, like, you know, brought him a bottle of champagne, and I got along with him really well. And we had this, I thought, what was a cool rapport. Now... I was making money, and he and his group weren't getting anything from that. 
you know, I wasn't slipping an envelope to these guys every month. I didn't even know who they were. But apparently that's something that other people were doing. So when he came to my event and saw how popular it was and how great it was, he wasn't there to become my friend. He was there to, like, do reconnaissance. This guy was a powerful member of what is essentially the Indonesian mafia. The following week, he gave Damon a call. And Damon naively was like, yeah, hey, come back next week. I'll put you on the guest list. Unfortunately, the guy wanted more than to sit in an embarrassing VIP area with a bunch of drunk influencers with too much filler. And he says, you think I need you to put me on the guest list? He's like, who the fuck do you think you are? You're a dog. You're nothing. He did end up um, uh, (laughs) taking me to an undisclosed location. There were many armed men, guns drawn, and he starts fucking with me putting a gun to my head, putting a gun in my mouth. I told him I have some money in my safe. I said, I'm, look, I'm not rich. He said, you're going to give me what you have? I'll fucking kill you. I'll kill your family. I'll bury you in a fucking rice field. I don't give a fuck about you. He kept telling me, you're a, you're a fucking dog in the street to me. So, um, yeah, that was fucking scary. Yikes. Still, somehow, this didn't make Damon want to leave Bali. He felt like he could work things out with the gangster who'd threatened to bury him below a rice paddy. He thought, next time he comes into my club, I'll just be like, what do I owe you? As you might imagine, Melissa wasn't having this. She was like, you're an idiot. We're getting the fuck out of here. Or at least that's how I imagine it went down. We really, we differ on this subject. We still do. We'll still fight about it. You made us leave. We could have had the greatest life ever in Bali. And I'm like, dude, what the, like, we were about to, he was being kidnapped by the Banjar, which is like the Balinese mafia. And he's making all this money. And you have to pay the Banjar their percentage. Like every, every expat that has a company there knows that. And he just thought he was always above the law or above that kind of authority or that kind of thing. So he didn't. And he made a lot of enemies there. Other promoters did not like him or appreciate him whatsoever. Damon would promote at their clubs for his club. And like, he had some people that did not care for him. But even before the whole kidnapping death threat debacle, Melissa was feeling like it was time to leave. It had been years and she missed home. My girls were growing up not knowing their family. We couldn't afford to, like, all four of us fly back to L.A. once a year or twice a year to see everyone. Way too expensive. They weren't, like, trekking halfway across the world to come see us, you know? So it was, like, sad. I felt lonely. And I just felt like, this isn't my home. This isn't my place where I'm going to rebuild my life and raise my kids. I think she didn't like Bali like I did. Bali's not an upper-class white picket fence experience. It's a very spiritual place. There was a lot of yoga. There was a lot of meditation. There was a lot of incense being burned. There was a lot of spirituality. And we both got off on that. But I think that she wanted to get back to Beverly Hills. You know, she wanted to get back to the United States. And I kind of was like, I don't want to go back and be broke. I don't want to go back and try to start from square zero again. Melissa won the fight. Back to square zero. It's now 2013. As we talked about in our first episode, they leave Bali and they move back to L.A. And they have to face their million-dollar debt. They declare bankruptcy. They move in with Melissa's mother, into her kitchen, to be exact. And a handful of months later, Damon creates Sanctum. From rags to riches and back again, 
rinse, and repeat. An EKG machine of success and misfortune, of incredible luck, and then squandering it all. This is pretty much the cycle of Damon's life. The reverberations of trauma are likely to inform who we become as adults, for better and for worse. Like, none of us have a full handle on our emotional baggage, right? Damon included. So I asked him, how did all of this, the highs and the lows, lead him to founding one of the most elite, exclusive, and controversial sex clubs in the history of sex clubs? It was a childlike experience for me in the beginning. Sexuality, in some ways for me, has always been like this childlike experience, this experience of like discovery and amazement and like, wow. And in some ways that stayed with me. So, you know, somehow I'm I'm not a therapist, but must have somehow manifested over time into this thing where, I don't know, I just loved sex. I loved the feeling. There's nothing okay about what happened to me. But somehow, I think I did take that. It didn't, like, destroy me. It ended up, in some strange way, kind of like part of the tools in my toolbox that I used to create the sex club. Next, on Sanctum Unmasked. Some of the high rollers, they were assured of being rolled. You know, nobody ever comes out and says, you know, what are you going to pay me? It's much more subtle than that. This gets into the realm of sex work, morality, what's okay and what's not okay. It also reminds me of why wealthy people will always be able to get what they want. If the clientele was poorer, I'd say they'd get raided. Sanctum Unmasked is a production of School of Humans and iHeart Podcasts. Hosted and written by me, Carly Shortino. Edelise Perez is our lead producer and story editor. Amelia Brock is our senior producer. Sound design, scoring, and mixing by George Hicks. Original music composed by Jesse Neiswanger. Fact-checking by Austin Thompson. Logo illustration by Linda McNeil. Graham Gibson is our recording engineer. Recorded at iHeart Studios in Los Angeles, California. Executive producers are Nick Stump, Jason English, Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, Elsie Crowley, and me, Carly Shortino. If you are enjoying the show, help us get the word out by leaving a rating in your favorite podcast app. You can keep up with Damon on Instagram. He's at Father Damon. Tune in next week. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Got menopause? We've got you. Hi, Jackie here, founder of ExoJackie. Feel supported throughout your menopause journey and beyond with our organic protein powders and symptom relief boosts. Formulated to keep bones and muscles strong, ExoJackie products help reduce bloating, hot flashes, and weight gain. Enjoy 20% off with promo code EXOPODCAST. Shop now at exojacqui.com. Made for women by women. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. 
going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.